Welcome to Room 106. I'm Richard Garlick from Planning Magazine. And I'm John Gagan, also from Planning Magazine. This is a bonus edition, taking a deep dive into more of the government's proposed changes to the National Planning Policy Framework. But before we get into that, here are the key news stories from the past seven days. My first big story is about the government writing to 17 English councils threatening to strip them of their planning powers because of their poor performance in determining applications on time. It's about the government's special measures programme where local planning authorities in England can be designated as poorly performing by ministers if they fail to meet criteria for either speed or quality of decision making. And this allows developers to submit applications directly to the planning inspectorate. The government's latest data covers the two years up to September 2022 and shows that 21 councils are in the danger zone and of these the government has written to 17 of them to warn them that um, they could be placed in special measures. My second story is a judge ruling that a planning inspector erred in law in his decision to refuse an application to alter a planning permission for a new house and he also described the government's planning practice guidance on the issue as confusing as he said it wrongly suggests that such alterations under section 73 of the Town and Country Planning Act should be limited to minor material amendments. My third story is comments made by the government's chief planner Joanna Averley in a webcast last week, the Have We Got Planning News For You webcast, in which she said that despite draft national planning policy framework changes, watering down the requirement for councils' development plans to meet their local housing need, she said that onus would still be on local authorities to explain why they have departed from these figures. And she claimed this change would help councils get more plans in place and increase housing delivery. Next, I've got a story about a Secretary of State decision that's been overturned by the High Court. This concerns an undersea power cable linking Britain to the continent. It's a nationally significant infrastructure project and it was approved by the former Energy Secretary Kwasi Kwarteng, but the High Court has now overturned his granting of a development consent order for the application. So my fifth story is the Prime Minister announcing new legislation to remove the key planning obstacle that meant permission for a new National Holocaust Memorial in a park next to Parliament was overturned following a legal challenge. This concerns a High Court ruling last year which overturned a ministerial decision to allow the um, proposed Holocaust Memorial and Learning Centre in Victoria Tower Gardens in Westminster. As a result of that, Rishi Sunak announced in the House of Commons that the government will introduce a bill to update historic legislation, the uh, London County Council Improvement Acts 1900. And my final story is an announcement by the Housing Secretary Michael Gove that the government will shortly publish an action plan setting out changes to the nationally significant infrastructure project regime. At the same time, he also said that he is seeking to strengthen the hands of the mayors of Manchester and West Midlands in areas including housing. Okay, well, many thanks, John. Uh, Whistle stop tour of some of the big news stories of the past week, and of course, more details on each of those stories can be found on planningresource.co.uk.
OK, so now to enter the chamber itself and pour over the details of the proposed National Planning Policy Framework revisions. John, would you like to join me? I'm fine, thanks, but I'm looking forward to hearing all about it. Fair enough. Well, time to don the visor and head in. OK, best of luck. Well, here I am again in the subterranean chamber into which all new planning information percolates. Thankfully, I can see I'm not alone. I'm joined in room 106 by two of planning's regular contributors. Firstly, David Blackman, who's been looking at how the changes would affect what councils are required to do in terms of housing land supply. Hello, David. Hello, Richard. And later, we'll be joined by Ben Cochin, who's been examining the proposed changes to the housing delivery test and the test of soundness for local plans. But first of all, David, you've been looking at the changes as regards housing land supply and the requirements of councils, what what they need to do to fulfil their uh, responsibilities on that front. Now, the NPPF, the the draft revisions, would change what local authorities are, are required to do. Can you explain how it would change what local authorities are required to do? Well, the the big change in terms of housing land supply is that councils will no longer have to maintain the rolling five-year land supply. Any local authority with an up-to-date plan, which is less than five years old, will no longer have to continuously demonstrate a deliverable five-year housing land supply. And this, of course, has implications for the presumption in favour of sustainable development, which, of course, makes it harder for councils to turn out applications for housing on on allocated sites. There's also a an important provision in this that authorities with emerging local plans will benefit from this too. If they've made sufficient progress to issue a Regulation 18 notice, which of course marks an important stage of public consultation on their plan policies, they'll only have to demonstrate a four-year supply of housing land. And there are other changes too. The draft MPPF drops the requirement for councils to provide a five-year housing land supply buffer. And they'll also be able to factor in any historic over or undersupply into their five-year housing land supply calculations. So a lot of changes here. Okay. So there are, there are some changes that benefit all councils, such as the, 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 change, the, the removal of the, of the need to um, provide more, more sites than are, uh, than, are, than are actually needed to meet a, a five-year supply. So historically, there's been the requirement that you've got to provide this this buffer, which in you know for, for most councils is is five percent above what's needed to, to meet the five year supply, but for um, uh, uh, for some councils um, un, you know who don't do well under the housing delivery test is is, is larger than that. Um, so that that's that uh, all councils are going to benefit from that. And then uh, uh, but the, and then the other sort of um, relaxations they're going to apply to to just a, a selection of councils. So it's it's councils that have have got a five-year housing land supply. So it's quite a substantial uh, relaxation. Indeed, yes. Are the updates, are they going to reduce the pressure on councils to grant enough planning permissions? There's concerns about this. I mean, on the upside, the councils say that it'll be more worthwhile to produce local plans because they won't be subject to these rolling challenges from a year or two into the plan. So that protects councils to a certain extent. But the real concern on the part of developers and a lot of planning consultants who act for developers, is that it will have a substantial 
impact on sites coming forward. And the concern here is that at the moment, there's lots of mechanisms for challenging and testing housing land supply figures from a fairly early stage in a, in a plan. What the concern is that those testing mechanisms won't be in place anymore. So it's going to be much harder to test the figures that councils are using. Have you been able to find out how many councils currently have an up-to-date local plan? You know, one that's, that is less than five years old in terms of its housing figures and therefore be released from this requirement to continuously maintain a five-year housing land supply? Well, it looks like, according to the latest planning inspectorate figures, which I had a look at, you're looking at about 140 councils at the moment have an up-to-date plan, which is less than five years old. So we're talking about just under half or around half of local planning authorities would have this kind of protection now. So a pretty substantial number. Of course, this is all dependent on these changes being put through, but the timetable is spring 2023, isn't it? So the government is hoping to get all this in place, you know, in the next couple of months. Of course, yes, yes. But it looks like, and the, another important thing to take into account here, is that these will kick in for decision making almost immediately, as soon as the, the new MPPF is in place. And I suppose it's also worth taking into account that politically, this is this is something which has come about following pressure from a lot of backbench MPs. So this is going to be something the government is going to be want to be seen to be delivering for a lot of its sort of heartland MPs. Very interesting, David. Anything else that you think is important for our audience to, to know about these changes? I just think that there is a fairly, just to reiterate that local authorities are going to be in a, a stronger position if they want to resist development. But councils would say that they're still going to have to come up with developable land. So it's not going to be a get-out-to-jail-free card for, for local authorities. It's just going to be interesting to see what the sort of balance is, isn't it, between making it easier for authorities to, to get a local plan in place and thereby maybe uh, giving them an extra incentive to do it, whether the upside of, of, of that, bringing forward more land and bringing forward more land allocations, if that outweighs the uh, the downside for developers of uh, there being a, a slightly less stringent demand on uh, councils to continuously keep that land supply up to date. Indeed, the cynic might say that this may well produce more plans, but less housing. That's what the cynic would say. Okay, well, thank you very much, David. That's great. I know you need to leave room 106 now, but uh, look forward to seeing you in future weeks. Nice to see you. Right, well, I'm delighted to say we're now joined by uh, another regular planning correspondent, Ben Cochin, who is going to be uh, talking to us about a couple of other aspects of the changes proposed in the consultation on, on revisions to the uh, NPPF. Ben, you've been looking at some changes to the housing delivery test, the system that's used to basically incentivise councils to maximise housing delivery in their areas and penalise councils by stripping them of planning powers if there is not what the government considers to be a sufficient amount of housing delivery within their boundaries. Thank you, Richard. Since uh, 2018, the government's run this housing delivery test. Basically, what it means is, is that they measure the amount of housing that's been built in, in a district against the amount they consider is needed. And... If there's a shortfall, then various sanctions apply. So if you hit 85% of the target, then a council is required to build in a 20% buffer 
in their housing land supply. And then if they only hit 75%, there is the heaviest sanction of all, which is basically presumption in favour of development, i.e. their local plans are no longer effective in approving or, more importantly, rejecting schemes that don't conform with the local plan. Now, this has all changed with the amendments to the NPPF. In effect, what's happened is that, yeah, the housing delivery test is going to continue, but, and this is a very big but, the sanctions are being weakened and in some respects removed. And this is of some concern to some commentators, and others have actually welcomed it. Okay, so which sanctions are being removed and and which ones are being weakened? So if you only hit 85%, you no longer have to build in a buffer to your housing land supply. If you only hit 75%, a new test applies. And there's actually a get-out-of-jail-free card here. If you can demonstrate that you've given planning permissions for 115% of your housing need, but obviously the homes haven't been built, then the presumption does not apply. Okay, so am I right in understanding that previously that would have been no defence? It's completely new, and they plucked these figures out of the sky, it would appear. And, of course, 115% is going to be a very difficult, you know, very hard to prove that you've achieved 115%, and how government will assess it is still very unclear, because clearly housing developments take a long time to progress, and they require large numbers of permissions. At what stage will they count towards your 115%? Will be something that needs to be clarified. Otherwise, it's meaningless. Presumably, I'm guessing that some developers won't like this because I think part of the purpose of the housing delivery test when it was first invented was to put an onus on, on, on planning authorities to give permissions that were sort of fairly easily implementable. And there was maybe a feeling that some permissions, maybe because they are attached to huge, very complex sites, weren't very easily and uh, immediately implemented. And therefore, you know, an authority might be being seen to be giving a lot of permissions, but it wasn't going to lead to a lot of housing on the ground anytime in the near future. So I'm guessing that some developers will be a bit uncomfortable about the idea that a large amount of permissions releases a council from its previous obligations to ensure that a lot of housing was was delivered on its patch. I think one, you know, developers are not particularly keen on these reforms because it actually removes the incentives. You know, the housing delivery test will really no no longer be a great incentive for councils to get their act together to approve schemes and for them to go ahead. One of the points which local authorities are making is they say, well, look, you know, yes, homes are not uh, not getting built, but it's not our fault. Yeah, we failed the test, but what could we do? So this is a sensible reform if you really want to have a housing delivery test at all. And a lot of people are saying it's pretty worthless. Just to understand that point, Ben, a lot of people are saying that the if you are going to have a housing delivery test, this makes it a bit fairer on councils, but they question whether you need a housing delivery test. Is that, is that, is that what you're saying? Exactly, Richard. That, that's what they're saying. They don't think there should be one. It's not within their power at the moment to build homes to achieve the test. They are reliant on a third party to build. And if the developers don't build, then 
why should they get penalised? I can see that argument, and it is a bit... Um, we always have to be careful to when writing about the housing delivery test not to talk about the need for councils to meet a target for delivering homes, because obviously it is a nonsense to talk about councils delivering homes. I suppose there might be some merit in incentivising councils to give permissions that are easily and, and quickly implementable, because... Um, Otherwise, there is a bit of a danger that things get kicked into the long grass. But um, I know that it has been something that local authorities have sometimes felt has been very unfair. I think so. And this 115% is interesting because it gives them an incentive to identify land and encourage developers to bring forward applications. So in that respect, it does make sense. Yes, yes, absolutely. And am I right in saying that there is no clarity about what's happening to this year's housing delivery test? Well, that's that, that's interesting. Yes, generally the uh, results come out about now. Actually, though previously the MPPF said November, but now that November it's actually say winter. So I think that's pretty certain it's winter now. So yeah, they are expected, and how the results will be treated is still up in the air with how these changes will be reflected this year, or will it be in subsequent years? The jury seems to be out. I think from what I something I, I, I read in one of the government documents, they're sort of almost inviting opinions about whether the test should take place this year. Yeah, they are, yeah. You've also been looking at a completely different area in the realm of local plan making and some proposed changes to the test of soundness for local plans. Can, can you tell us a bit about that? Yes, I, I've had a very exciting two weeks looking at these MPPF amendments, Richard. Um <laughs> The other area I've been looking at is on, on this soundness test. Now, the soundness test is, is a crucial part of the local plan examination. The inspector or examiner has a number of key factors he will judge a plan by. And the soundness test is key alongside the community consultation and various others. And there are currently four different areas for the soundness test. An inspector needs to ensure that a plan's been positively prepared, justified, and is effective and consistent with national policy. Now, three of them are getting amended, or two of them actually, but one is going completely, and that is the justified one. And this is the one that I've been focusing on uh, and looking at what its impact might be. Just for starters, can you explain what it means to justify a local plan? What do plan makers have to demonstrate to show that the local plan is justified? They need to show that it has an appropriate strategy that takes into account reasonable alternatives and is based on proportionate evidence. That is not many words, but quite fundamental. And you might well ask, well, isn't this important and why is it going? And the government's arguments are, are, are pretty cogent on this. They want to speed up plan making. They've got this objective that the plans should be prepared in 30 months, very important, and they want local planning authorities having to produce large amounts of evidence to show that their approach is reasonable. I don't think anyone has any argument against the fact that you don't want to produce more evidence than necessary. Because they're wanting these things to be produced quickly, they want these local plans to be produced quickly, 
they're wanting to reduce the amount of evidence that local authorities have to have to show. Indeed, that's really important. They want to reduce the amount of evidence. And how does uh, taking away the sort of justified requirement reduce the amount of evidence? It's a little bit unclear exactly the extent of the evidence that will still be required. But one area that is clear is is that the councils won't need to look at, to the same extent, reasonable alternatives. So, i.e., if they're looking at development within their district, they would consider alternative scenarios for how housing might be distributed within that area. And that takes up a lot of time. And so, in effect, they are taking out that requirement. It is a very open-ended sounding requirement, isn't it? You know, where do your responsibilities stop if you've got to look at a whole load of possible alternatives? Oh, it is. It's open-ended. And, 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 you know, one commentator I spoke to said, look, you know, councils are producing mountains of evidence. But one, one, one planning inspector had to uh, rent a lockup to put all the evidence for an inquiry into, to store it. So there is a lot of evidence being prepared. And some would say it's not really necessary for the local plan. So... Does that mean you see this as a as a, a pretty significant change, the removal of this requirement? In terms of alternatives, it definitely is. In other respects, you see, evidence will still need to be required. So you will have to base it in evidence, but you will not have to look at all those alternatives anymore. And for that reason, is it going to make it easier for local authorities to get plans adopted? It should do, but there are quite a lot of ifs and buts in this. Local authorities generally have welcomed this because they think it will make it easier. But others are saying, well, if you're not showing the working, how you actually reached your conclusions, one person said there could be legal challenges. If you don't actually show, it's a bit like, you know, if you're doing an exam, you're doing a maths exam, and you come up with a result, and, and you don't show how you reached that result, the examiner is going to think, well, hold on a minute, does the authority know what they're doing? And so developers of all the community will say, actually, hmm, this doesn't really make sense because we don't know how they've reached that conclusion. And so there are, there, are, there are quite a lot of concerns around this in terms of transparency. Now, if a developer isn't, um, his site is not included in the site allocations, they might be unhappy. They say, well, look, you know, our site makes sense, yes. It fits in. Why have they excluded it? Because it's not explained anywhere. So there could be quite a lot of debate, possible protracted legal challenges, if these form of slim down plans are introduced to pass the soundness test. It could be that it's a bit quicker to go through the plan making process, but then delays occur later on because of challenges and, uh, and, and so forth. Anything else that people need to be aware of about you know, the potential implications of, of, of this change should it go through as proposed? There's going to be interesting questions around how sustainability is, is, is treated. That's one of the big areas that protracted nature of inquiries and loads of documents. And they are going to have to look at how that's addressed under the new regime if it happens. Well, thank you very much, Ben. Uh, that's great. And uh, thanks once again for braving Room 106 to um, <laughs> to help us all understand some of the uh, fuller sort of implications of these proposed changes to the MPPS.
I'm sure we're going to continue to explore them over coming weeks. And of course, if you want to learn more about some of the other uh, implications of the changes, then um, then we've covered them in previous episodes as well. But uh, thank you very much, Ben, and see you in uh, Room 106 shortly, I hope. I'm sure. Thank you, Richard. Bye-bye. Great, that's another edition completed. We'll be back next week with more news. And in the meantime, don't forget to subscribe wherever you normally get your podcasts. And to get a daily bulletin of planning news, plus weekly analysis and specialist bulletins, subscribe at planningresource.co.uk. Our thanks to producer Hannah Holt from Haymarket Business Media and Daisy Chaku from Rethink. And thanks for listening.